Welcome to Wild Under Root, a podcast about plants, place, and magic with Lisa Fazio and Pete Bianco. Even if lightning strikes Or if thunder splits the sky If the mountains fall And rivers overflow You can never stop a seed from growing I believe in sustainability. I am an advocate for sustainability. I believe that anything can be used as a tool or a weapon, and we just need to be on top of what that looks like and what we're doing with sustainability. And we can't use that word as a code word for theft of land. We have to use it as uh, the word, as the meaning it's intended to be, which means intact ecosystems. And if that means that there are human beings that are interdependent on it, then they should certainly remain part of their ecosystem and not be moved out. Welcome, everyone, to the Wild Under Root podcast. We are your hosts, Lisa Fazio and Pete Bianco. And today, our guest is Christine Shaheen, who is a longtime friend of mine and in our, a community member here in the Cuyahora Valley and central New York, as well as one of our local elders, and leaders in the activist community. So welcome, Christine, who is the author of Natural Hair Coloring. And her book is on how to use henna and other pure herbal pigments for chemically, chemical-free beauty, which henna is awesome. And I henna my hair regularly and for many reasons. One is just how much I, my hair loves the way henna feels. Christine is a licensed cosmetologist and holistic beauty practitioner, as well as an eco-human rights activist. She owned and operated Faces of Astarte in Little Falls, New York, which was a popular eco-salon and spa, and it attracted people from across the United States. It was founded in 2006 and she closed last year, March 2019, moving her work into other directions. Christine pursued a conventional cosmetology license with the intent of introducing natural, safe, ecologically responsible approaches to self-care. And she has uh, a new business called Goddess Beauty LLC, which is a mail order business where she offers pure organic herbs used to color hair with new products coming soon. And the website is christineshaheen.com, which we will post in the in the links on the podcast page. So welcome, Christine. Hello. Thanks, Lisa. Hi, Pete. Hi. Nice to hear your voice again. Yeah. It's good to be with the cohorts. So um, I guess just maybe a little bit about how we know each other and, and, you know, you and I met when my kids were babies yeah. and your kids were little kids yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were showing up at herbal workshops. Yeah. I think. Exactly. So it's been about, well, 25, 26 years. I yeah. Say. Yeah. And then of course, uh, more recently within the last uh, 10 or 13 years, 
it's been pretty regular. So it's great. Yeah. So we've worked together in various capacities, doing workshops and events and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Red tents. Yeah. Red tents. That's right. Red, we do red tents. <laughs> So you want to just share a little bit about your book and, you know, why you wrote it and what it's about? Sure. I guess for me, it was really nothing that I thought I would end up doing. The salon is really an extension of my activism, which started, uh, you know, back in 1989, 90, when our community was cited for a regional landfill and incinerator. And at the time, you know, our awareness around the environmental issues was really heightened. And a dear friend, cosmetologist friend of ours, uh, had uh, met with his creator. And uh, we felt it very personally because he would do all of our hair every couple of months. Mm -hmm. And having six kids, that was quite an impact. And so those two situations combined in my, in my heart. And I was like, you know, I've been bringing my kids up. Like you said, Lisa, we were meeting up at like herbal workshops and stuff. So I'd been bringing my kids up on alternative medicines, and I realized that there was a place for these wonderful herbs and oils in beauty, and uh, it had to be a safer way because as we were fighting this landfill and incinerator, of course, you start looking at all the products that you're using, or at least we did. And we had, you know, we had been doing that for a long time, but other people are now getting that awareness. And now you're saying, well, now this is the next level, even though we've cleaned up our home. Now, what can we do to help society and culture also evolve? And so that's when uh, those two incidences uh, collided in my life and um, spurred me to get my uh, conventional cosmetology license so that I could cut hair and learn how uh, to do beauty more naturally and offer that to the public as a safer option. You know, many people, um, they want to do certain things, but they just don't have access. Or right. some people are very uh, sensitive and they cannot use uh, mainstream products. Right. And, uh, and so they are kind of left out of the whole salon experience, right? Because right. they can't walk in. It smells too bad. The products aren't something they can use. Me right here. That's me. Yeah. yeah. And so when, when we opened Faces of Astarte, it was like a little gem for the women that were sensitive. So um, they didn't feel left out anymore from being able to gather with other women with beauty. So, yeah. So I know one thing in my own herbal practice, one of the issues that I've come in contact with, with uh, people who color their hair with chemical dyes is alopecia is often the result allergies um and alopecia hair loss yeah hair loss right thank you um and that i often have referred them to you to address a couple things one is getting off the chemicals and still being able to color their hair and two that sometimes the products that you use to color people's hair actually 
um, counter the alopecia in other ways as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's very true. Uh, I mean, for some, it's, it, you know, there is a connection to hormones with alopecia, especially um, areata, stress, that kind of stuff. And we know that stress can impact hormones and hormones impact stress. It's kind of like that cyclical thing. Uh, but certainly when we start using really hazardous products on our skin, so what we forget is that, you know, like in high school, we learn about osmosis, right? Mm-hmm. In, in biology, it's like, oh, the skin is the body's largest organ and right. it's permeable to a degree, right? So it's permeable to a degree. And then they tell us that and then we grow up and they start selling us these products that have um, hormones in them. And sometimes you want that, right? Because you need a balance of your hormones. So you're going to do that and doing it topically, like whether it's a a birth control or if it's nicotine or if it's, and you're doing it topically, it's more quickly absorbed into the bloodstream right? because that blood is on the surface of the skin. And so whatever we put on our skin, it's like 60% within 20 seconds gets absorbed wow. into the bloodstream. And then sometimes they have pro- the, they have ingredients in the products that we don't want. So sometimes, you know, we do want them. What are they mixed with that uh, we don't want? <laughs> and are they getting delivered quicker that way? And, you know, so there's a whole, it's a whole thing in of, of itself. So... Uh- he had a question just oh, yeah. for what's areata? Uh, areata um, is a form of alopecia where it's like the size of a quarter or a dime um, and it's very round. Um, whereas alopecia in general could be like a receding hairline um, and the areata comes and goes. So you, mm, I experienced it one, uh, several like a for a period in my life and then I don't have it anymore um but my hairline kind of recedes a little bit you know and I've done a lot of uh the henna and herbs and so while it thickens my hair uh and it reduces the appearance of it I still have a cyclical thing with that uh, experience. Mm. When I'm highly stressed, I can see that I'm thinning a little bit more. It's a, it's a reminder to uh, go deeper in my meditation, to let things go deeper, mm. um, that kind of thing. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so the Ariata P is you, some people, they have them throughout the, their head. Um, and it's like, like I said, the size of a nickel, a quarter, that kind of thing. It's perfectly round. And then it seems to come and go in cycles. Now, remember this, uh, our hair is cyclical. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so really good. It has its phases. It has its, uh, active, growing phase it has a dormant phase and then it has a fallout phase so while we're connecting this uh, cycle to maybe stress and hormones it is a natural cycle now what we want to also understand is with the areata it's one of those things where i speculate i hypothesize although mainstream medical doesn't um, if somehow they are going through their cycle together rather than dispersely through the hair. 
And what would that mean if these patches are going through their cycles together? And how can we interrupt that communication so that it's more of a uniform and throughout the hair as nature would tend to do it? So that, that that's just a little side on, uh, you know, hair loss and that kind of thing. Well, I know for myself that I don't have alopecia at this point in my life. In fact, right. my hair is like really super thick. Um, and so for me, uh, and my hair, at, but as I've aged, my hair has just gotten so um, much coarser. Mm-hmm. Um, more like my mom's <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I don't mind it, but, um, I do the way that the henna, it just does something to my hair where it softens it. Right. Yeah. And it brightens it. Yeah, it does. And your color, uh, comes out great. It's so interesting with these herbs, how you could do the same thing and Pete could do the same thing and you would get totally different results. Mm. Yeah, because there's a synergy that happens between my particular hair type. Right. And your color, remember that how the uh, color manifests in the hair also has to do with your base color, right? So if your base color is 50% gray, or maybe your base color is 10% gray, it's going to take and produce a different result. Um yeah, and so we start losing color in our hair. There are so many hypotheses as to why, you know. Um, the hair goes through a cycle as it matures that they say there's a lot of uh, hydrogen peroxide being created. Mm. And then there's the whole question, again, you know, these uh, questions within questions that lead us into places where we're like, I don't really know. It could be the chicken. I could possibly be the egg. Right. Um, but with that, um, the, the reality is, is that no matter what hair color you use, whether it's chemical or whether it's herb, that uh, hair shaft is going to have a hard time holding color because mm. now it doesn't have its natural color. Mm. So what I'm saying is that in order to get good color, you have to have color in your hair, right? Mm. So the beauty about the herbs is that they act differently than chemicals, which they open the hair shaft, they go into the cuticle, down into the cortex, and then they change the color that way. Mm -hmm. They have direct access to the papilla, which is the root. Um, so that goes directly into the bloodstream. The herbs act very differently. They are a stain. They do not open the cuticle. Uh, they seep through, so they're not opening and uh, creating uh, damage mm. um, and actually they can be very great hair conditioners and um, some people do find that they get a little dry from some of the herbs and that's a personal reaction but you can always add I like to add like coconut milk rather than the oils but uh, the yogurts the uh, coconut milk um, 
those types of things also have a little bit of uh, like lactic acid in them. So these herbs, uh, it's a gentle acid, whereas apple cider vinegar can be a little bit more harsh. And when I wrote the book, I was using apple cider vinegar. Now I really just use hibiscus tea, black tea, green tea, oh. uh, any kind of uh, chamomile tea, any kind of tea. They still have the tannins. They're lighter uh, acid. Um, they're not as smelly as the apple cider vinegar or lemon juice. Um, and it's different for everybody. You really don't need to use a lot of apple cider vinegar or lemon juice, but some people will still uh, feel that their scalp is somewhat itchy or um, dry. And so play around, use the uh, coconut milk, use yogurt, use tea. Um, what and, oils, when you say yeah. oils, what, it, what, what oils do you use? I typically don't uh, use an oil when I'm mixing my henna. You could, like I said, I prefer to use more of the, uh, even like almond milk, just because the milks are a little bit more, I want to say, um, moisturizing. Oil can be moisturizing, but in a denser way. And I think that it certainly depends on your hair texture. So um, if you have ethnic hair, um, you know, you might want to use uh, a couple tablespoons of olive oil or maybe um, avocado oil, that kind of thing. But I find too, even with my kinky, uh, curly Arabic hair, that it will uh, respond nicely to a little yogurt, to a little um, um, coconut milk you know, that kind of thing. And it makes it soft. And yeah, the herbs are lovely that way, I feel. Christine, with the anatomy of the hair shaft, what is the, where is the cuticle located? The cuticle is the outside of the hair shaft. The cortex is the center and the papilla is the root. Okay. And so your book, um, just for people listening, is a basically a how-to, do-it-yourself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so people can can go through that and do do their own henna. And I must say, it is really nice to do with friends as well. It definitely lends itself to gatherings with people to do each other's hair, right? Oh, yeah. And we've done that, and we're hopefully going to be doing that. Yep. Where we get together and do each other's hair. Yeah. No, I mean, it really brings us back to our, um, oh, to our matriarchal roots where, you know, the collective, when we lived in more in a collective environment and we shared responsibility, we also shared taking care of each other, right? Because in our uh, patriarchal uh, expression, everybody is sort of like in their own little cubicle and uh, the female, it becomes the nucleus of the family where everything revolves around her, but she doesn't get the kinds of uh, reprieve or the types of um, interactions uh, that are so nourishing uh, and to sustaining the group that she's responsible for. Mm -hmm. um, and those traditions, whether it was body art or hair coloring, um, were really vital in our collective um, female experience. Mm, and I can say, I feel like one of the things that I learned from you from our 
both just you as a mentor and friend and um, oh, and I should just, I feel like I should add that you kind of have this local name, a couple of local names um, of as being everybody's mudder. M-U-D-D-E-R. Oh, right. <laughs> so you're my mudder. And also uh, many of us in the community call you Immy. Yeah. Um, is Arabic, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I feel like you've definitely been a mother type person in my life, which I think everybody needs many mothers. Yes, I agree. I have mothers too. My mama and my aunties that were my mamas and some neighbor women. Yeah, it's so great to to be that. And uh, you you might remember our sister, Diane Patterson, the folk goddess. Yes. Who, uh, she oh, yeah, so we can, has a sweet little nickname for me. She calls me Sisma because I'm old enough to be her sister, but we have a kind of mother-daughter relationship too. So she calls me Sisma. So there's another nickname. <laughs> So one, yeah. So I feel like you know I learned so much from you about beauty and the ritual, the sacred aspects of adornment, both of self-adornment and of adorning each other in this really loving, sacred way. Which I have to say, every time I go to when I went to your when you had your salon. Um, and now when you and I just get together and you, and you do my hair for me, it always feels like a ritual event, a ceremony. And so much more comes out of it than just my hair being a certain color. And I feel like as somebody over a lifetime who really, I just, I never really did well with like this whole idea of like putting makeup on my face. I mean, I did it and it just ended up everywhere. And it <laughs> like and then made my skin itch because there's so many women are so diverse you know some really get into it and some don't and there's no judgment or should be no judgment you know and I felt that like like also like when my hair started to to turn to go gray that I didn't want it you know also just kind of this counter idea like I didn't want to cover it up because I felt like oh my gosh I'm starting to look more like my grandmother's but just also it helped me to open to the the sacredness of of self self care and mm-hmm. self adornment and I just wonder if you could just share a little bit about like um one your idea your ideas around beauty, any ideas you have around that, which I, I'm sure you have plenty, and also um just how this is also a culture a traditional cultural practice if you want to share anything about that or have anything to say about both of those things yeah sure so um for me beauty is about knowing who we are right because when we start crossing over into natural beauty um it's you're you're getting out of the box where everybody's the same Right. And so in in mainstream beauty, it's a top down kind of thing. It's like, okay, here's the look for 2020, you know, or there was a look for 2018. And, and, you know, it's this and it's that. Well, when you say, yeah, but that doesn't 
fit me, right? I, it's not my color. It's not my body type. It's not my personality. Then some, then those things make me outside what's, what's normal, right? Um, and what's acceptable and what's beautiful. And so we are so diverse um, as human beings, men and women, that uh, when we break that illusion that, you know, everybody has to eat this way and everybody has to dress this way and everybody has to weigh this much. And, you know, first of all, it's boring. And second of all, it's, it's, uh, it's bondage, right? And we don't want to be bound. We, we want to be free. And, and sometimes you hear that out of people that espouse freedom and sovereignty and yet you know it's oh but you can't do that you can't do this so for me it's about that it's about knowing myself what works for me um do I need a nose job maybe but you know my aunt Betty used to say she had a big nose that when God was handing out noses she thought he said roses so she said give me the biggest one so what do you do when God gives you the biggest one <laughs> <laughs> you love it. She loved it. She was beautiful. Um, and, uh, and I always appreciated that story from her because it really allowed her to embrace who she was and therefore uh, a good example for me to do the same. Um, and so when we know ourselves, you know, our, do we get lightheaded if we have lavender? Well, then, you know, is chamomile okay? And those types of things. And then we really start to you know, Lisa, as you know, and Pete, as an herbalist, these herbs just sometimes have to be near us, right? And we get so much from just being with them and working with them. And now we put them in a product and then this becomes our our product. You know, this is something that really works for me. And uh, coconut oil might work for uh, some people and it might not work for others. And the same with olive oil. So um, but I'm going back to that, that place of knowing who you are, um, maybe your culture, maybe your, uh, because things come out of a culture, right? That you all had a certain texture to your hair. You all had a certain, um, uh, herb that was grown that you, um, you know, used a food um, in the Middle East, in Lebanon, and, and that area there. It's olives, it's lemons, and, you know, it's like, it's in everything, olives and lemons. And you, you can live off of olives and lemons. You don't need, you're going to do a lot of different things with olives and lemons. So it's amazing. And so for now that we're in a small planet, and we're all sharing, you know, well, this is tea tree, and this is uh, oregano and this is and it's great and we get to share it um, what might work in those geographic areas for those populations might be different for everybody and so we were all given something that was going to work for us mm. um, and so for me that's kind of the thing about the beauty that I want to help sustain and nurture mm. um, and that to me is really a lot of uh, beauty is nurturing, right? Is when you're happy. Um, I remember my other aunt on my mom's side, she was a store model, and she would say, You know, if you're comfortable, you're always going to look beautiful. 
So find the things that fit you and make yourself feel comfortable. And you're always going to look beautiful because you're comfortable because you're accepting of where you are in that moment. And it could change, right? It could change, but it doesn't have to change or it will most undoubtedly change. And so those are some of the things around beauty. And when we always have it be a certain way, then again, it's not beautiful. It's, uh, you know, probably abusiful. Mm -hmm. So um, we wanna be careful a lot of times with our uh, expectations around beauty. Mm. Yeah, I know beauty, beauty is such a interesting word and I feel like it, it often just gets kind of boxed into this idea of super yeah. Um, yeah, break out of the box. And, and it's, it's actually um, has some really deeper meanings uh, about the beauty and balance of the soul and the heart. And like you said, that, that being comfortable or that like alignment or attunement with self. Right. I feel like that's, uh, you know, a lot of what, what you have to offer. Thanks. Yeah. And so as far as culturally, you know, my aunties, some of them use henna, but again, the thing is, is today, what we're doing because we've lost a lot of that knowledge and most of them ended up as redheads or orange brassy hair because they weren't wanting the gray because of course again this is about acceptance within your cultural community and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh, but today we know that there are many other herbs that we can mix together to achieve uh, a wide range of colors. Certainly there are limitations and the book can get you through some of that. You know, it's like, well, here's the recipe, but this is the amount of uh, gray in this hair to dark brown or blonde, you know, so you get an idea of how you can become your own um, artist, you know, your own beauty artist for yourself, for your life. You know, what we're doing is we're creating a beautiful life and a beautiful life is your relationship to your environment, uh, which is our natural resources in our bank, um, but they don't have overdraft protection. And when we abuse those, that comes back to us. So how do we expect to stay healthy, beautiful, when our water is contaminated, our air is polluted, um, and our natural resources have been despoiled? So these are very intricate links. And um, Pete, you asked, um, in an email, uh, why is it called cosmetics? Does it have to do with the cosmos? Yeah. And my response is yes, because when we understand that these natural ingredients that we use are receptors, just as we are receptors to the cosmic energy patterns that are happening, whether it's the sunlight, the moonlight, the stars, the um, the air quality, the water quality, and all of that, what, then we start to go, okay, I get when my faith says we are one. 
you know, because not only am I one with this environment, but every time I sit with the two of you and we exchange our breath through breathing, you know, there is no separation. And yet they create, they, those that have an interest uh, to keep us divided will create these illusions of separation. And so our, our beauty is dependent on how we get along with each other, our respect for each other, our allowing each other to be who we are without judgment and still accept who we are, which might be diametrically different mm-hmm. uh, and and share that space together and just recognize the things that are common, right? That we depend on water, that we depend on air, that we stand on common ground, Um and so that's beautiful beauty when it's all cos cosmetic cosmologically you know <laughs> having to do with the cosmos yes it is <laughs> you're a poet and a prophetess <laughs> uh i i don't know i my package <laughs> <laughs> um so so you so henna is one of the herbs that you use so um and and i know that there's there's others and maybe we could talk about some of those as well but just with henna henna is where did the use of henna originate so henna is um uh it's grown naturally it's indigenous to arid countries Mm -hmm. so the temperatures are very hot Mm -hmm. and um it was used uh, when when people started working with them. So it's got medicinal properties, you know, from skin to all kinds of uh, like headaches. And, uh, you know, uh, they use the leaves as an antiperspirant. Um, it's a remedy for fevers. They, you know, things like that. So they are using it. And then as they started using and uh, powdering the plant and working with it they would notice that their hands the palms of their hands would turn red mm-hmm. and that it would give them a cooling so it's actually a coolant as well mm-hmm. so that the first traditions around henna was to use them uh, for cooling because they grow in these very hot countries and so they would put it on the palms of their hands and the base of their feet so they could walk mm-hmm. on uh, hot surfaces and not burn. Uh, henna is also a sunblock. It's a sunblock. So when you put uh, a henna design on your arm and it fades, it, there would be a reverse image there if you had been out in the sun um getting a tan and then when the henna fades you would see a, a reverse image so it is a sun block which means that when you put it on your hair it is healthy that way for your hair so you don't get sun damage but it's also coolant on your head you know sometimes you have really hot days and in our culture we don't cover our heads much Um, And when we do, it's a straw hat that can kind of blow off, you know, or fall off. Um, In some other cultures, they just wrap their hair, you know, and it keeps it protected. Of course, hair is meant to keep your scalp protected. But if you want beautiful hair, what do you do to protect your hair? Right. And so that's where the hair wrapping comes in. And um, 
and then the henna so that it doesn't have the sun damage and stuff like that. So henna is red. It's always red. Um, and so when you are shopping in a natural food store or any store and you see where it says blonde henna or you see that it says brown henna or black henna, those are misnomers because henna is red. It's always red. Um, they have herbal hair colorants, but they lump them all under the term of henna. It just makes it a little bit easier for customs and stuff like that. Um, so they lump them all under the category of henna, but the four herbs that I've used in my salon and continue to consult with women remotely on are henna, indigo, cassia, and amla. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have the primary color wheel that we learned in, I don't know, was it first grade? Yeah. Uh, the three primary colors are red, blue, and yellow, right? So henna is red, and indigo is blue, and cassia is a blonde molecule. And it's not a very strong deposit, but nonetheless, it has a blonde tone to it. So from those three, we can create different levels of different colors. And the amla doesn't actually work as a deposit color. It works uh, more in a recipe creation way to tone down some of the reds of henna, to create different tones of reds, to um, uh, bring, uh, to bring uh, more of a silver tone to gray hair. So if you wanted to keep your gray hair and you didn't really want to color it, but you wanted to condition your hair and to really bring out some beautiful highlights, Amla is fabulous for that. So, um, yeah, so those are the four, henna, indigo, cassia, and Amla. Hmm. Christine, did you ever hear that the henna is a contact aphrodisiac? I have heard that. And um, I do believe part of that is because it's a sensuous art that when you're using it, you're creating uh, art on the body. And it's usually used in preparation for, well, not usually anymore, but traditionally it was used for uh, rites of passage and the most common would be marriage. And so one of the things that we forget around marriage and it was like a, it's contractual, right? So in the day when you lived in a tribe and you wanted to uh, get the right match for your daughter, you would make a contract with somebody and you would say, because she's your daughter, your beloved, you don't want her to be abused. And you say, look, because she's going to go live with her husband's family. This is patriarchal, right? Mm -hmm. So she's going to go and she's going to live with her husband's family. And so the men sit down and they do a good deal for both of their children. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. We're not going to say that they were just making uh, financial uh, gains, but they were. And also they weren't doing it unlovingly to their children. Right. So part of this tradition with the henna body art was a, as a contract. So she's got her body art for her wedding and they know that uh, when she comes to live with them, she gets say two months off of work, right? She's not going to be used as uh, you know, somebody that's uh, a servant in the home. She's going to have her honeymoon. She's going to be pampered because when you have henna on your hands and when you work a lot, that henna is going to disappear rather quickly and on your feet. 
right? So this uh, tradition is to allow her to be pampered. She sits and she gets doted on before um, she becomes a mother. And then when she becomes pregnant and she wants to welcome her child in the late months of her uh, pregnancy, they henna her, her belly, you know, as a rite of passage to come into the world. Now, henna was also uh, not only used as an aphrodisiac, but also as an abortacant. So one of the reasons why they wait to do the henna on the belly is because, you know, it can be used in ways that can um, sometimes, if you're not aware uh, not correctly, and you could hurt yourself somewhat. So um, that's why the the traditions for the belly art is not until like around two weeks away from your your right. due date, and then that's going to help stimulate whatever hormones are in the belly to get it prepared for its eventual delivery. So I mean, it's really fascinating from whether it was like used from. Uh, as a coolant on the hands and feet, sunblock for the hair, to uh, marriage contracts, to welcoming a child. And I believe there are even deaf hennas, you know, that when a person transitions, they had them for the rites of passage. Is that a concern uh, when using it for hair dye if, if the woman is pregnant? No, actually, uh, I because... It does work differently than the chemical, and I'm not going to say that it won't have access to the root because I'm, I'm just going to sound ignorant because we just said that things uh, enter the body through osmosis. Um, but it is not in such an intense way because it's on the hair, and it acts as a stain, so it doesn't really open the shaft and go directly quickly into the root. And many um, OBGYNs locally uh, had told their clients, which I was kind of surprised because I would get a phone call saying, I have to stop coloring my hair. I'm pregnant. My doctor said you did henna. So there does seem to be a place where doctors support the use of henna. And then they kind of take back their support a little bit around the belly art sometimes. But if you really know your stuff you're going to be okay with, uh, you know, doing the henna on your hair while you're pregnant or on your belly in your late term, you know. Um, wow. That's so what, so I know my daughter was, she just married a Hindu man. And oh yeah. Wasn't that a riot? That's yeah. great. You had and such so an awesome did, experience. It was very traditional. It was a whole traditional wedding and she did the the henna body henna and along with a bunch of other aspects of the their culture what so what cultures do we find this specific use in um so typically it's the middle east africa and um what we would call southeast asia so there's a new term that's kind of being birthed right now which would right. be uh, Swana, and I know you're familiar with it, Lisa, which is Southwest Asia, North Africa, um, because the part of that really is part of Asia, you know, and we've been calling it Middle East, and we've been saying it according to, I guess it's a 
European context. I'm not really sure. But yeah, as we uh, journey back to our uh, traditions and we want to self-describe rather than be described, there is uh, MENA, Middle East, North Africa is one. And then the other is SWANA, which is Southwest Asia, North Africa. And um, definitely I know that our family considers itself Asian in many regards. So it's the Middle East, it's Africa, and it's uh, Southeast Asia is where it's mostly grown indigenously. Mm-hmm. And all of these herbs really grow in those areas. The only one that was different was like indigo. Um, there was like a, a plant sister to it called woad in Europe. Um, and indigo just won the war, you know, it was a, a horrible woad war. Um, but it was a similar plant and it colored similar. Um, but it lost the the war but i do believe that the europeans are trying to bring that herb back for themselves woad. which is great yeah yes yes um actually woad is also in herbal medicine what we call isatis okay type of woad it's actually really antiviral yeah yeah so that was henna indigo they were antivirals yeah mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so maybe this is a good place to sort of segue into your activist work, um, as we're talking about SWANA and, um, the way that we identify and the names that we give ourselves and each other that, um, you were a community activist and you ran for a long time. You founded Kids Against Pollution, which was a local group. Do you want to? So Kids Against Pollution was actually founded in New Jersey in like 1987. I think it was like a fifth grade or sixth grade class that um, was doing a government, uh, hands-on government class passing, uh, you know, bills and stuff like that. And they came up with the environmental, Kids Against Pollution Environmental Bill of Rights. and it was started in New Jersey uh, in 1987. Um, and the, it was a response by kids, I believe in the sixth grade, who were doing a, a government project around passing bills. And they created uh, a Kids Against Pollution Environmental Bill of Rights. And of course, in 87, New Jersey's shores were uh, trashed, you know, all the trash that was going out that they were taking out into the ocean and dumping it was being washed ashore. And so the kids couldn't go swimming. They were like, what is all of this? And that really is how Kids Against Pollution got started. Now, our community, um, our community also, SISMA, um, Beth Margulis, uh, had found Kids Against Pollution in, uh, I think, a National Geographic magazine or something like that, Newsweek. Um, and she uh, reached out to the founder, Nick Byrne, and um, my daughter, Lena, and her son, Jonah, went to New Jersey and learned about Kids Against Pollution and how to start a chapter. And they spoke at the United Nations Environmental Forum. And um, at some point, Beth uh asked me to take the reins of it because she was too busy. And so that's how I got involved with Kids Against Pollution. Um, And then uh, 
you know, when our community, Lisa, was cited for a regional landfill and incinerator in 1989, that really um, catapulted me into uh, a lot of eco-activism. Not only locally were we raising funds. I mean, it's a, it was a lifestyle. In order to keep that landfill and incinerator, actually, we were successful in eliminating the incinerator totally from the proposal. We couldn't totally eliminate the landfill. It did land in Ava, New York. But um, in order for us to do that, it was like 24-7 work. And here you have kids, you know, I had six kids um, and we didn't want to have that in the community. And it was a lot of phone calls, a lot of letter writings, a lot of campaigns, a lot of fundraising. And uh, one day we got the call that um, it was no our area was no longer in consideration for the for the site. So when people are faced with these types of projects and you get called a NIMBY, right, which is not in my backyard, it's really important to understand what it takes to get to the other side of that and also how important being a NIMBY is. It's not something that should be a stigma. Everybody should be be protecting their own backyard. If you're not going to protect your backyard, who's going to? Right. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, these things uh, really played a formative part in my um, development into who I've become, whether it was an eco-cosmetologist, uh, you know, understanding the connection between the economy and the environment, uh, and knowing that you, you know, even human rights, the fact that we exploit people or people that live under occupation and war on a daily basis, the amount of toxic uh, impacts is just mind boggling. And so uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, it's something we all have to address because we can't, it's not sustainable. We have to deal with that. Now, there is some issue around the word sustainability, and people do believe that um, sustainability is a sort of code word for taking over the world. And I can't say that I don't disagree with that concept. Because how is that? I, Can you explain that a little bit more? What is that? How is that? So here's how that will work and is working. So when I was, when Kids Against Pollution went to the World Summit on Sustainable Development in South Africa, um, we went to one of these preserves. It's called an international sanctuary site. Uh, and it was the bush, you know, and it had a, uh, I don't know, million year lake from a crater in there and so now they designated it as an international sanctuary site which means that all the bush people that live there and that were somehow immune to the toxicity from the the water in this crater because they've lived there for generations were moved out yeah. and so now we are understanding that you know there is a push for movement to get people into high more highly populated areas uh we also know that our good intentions can uh pave a road to hell so we want to preserve these sites but not 
exclude, um, I, I believe that that site should be preserved as is, is so those people, the bush people can remain living there. Not that we move the bush people out of their habitat and their way of life that they've only known for, you know, I don't know, a millennia, yeah. <laughs> you know, 500,000 years. Yeah. 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 Why, why was the site toxic? Uh, I mean, you know, when you go to uh, preserve some of these sites, I don't have all the data. I have the uh, talking points, right? And so what I thought I was hearing from them is that it had, because it was created through this crater, a crater had fallen, um, or created, um, no, a meteor had fallen, created the crater, right? And in that act, it had brought up a lot of salt, perhaps, and the amount of salt was highly toxic. Okay. So, um, again, is, is since we're all individuals, and then if this bush tribe people had lived there for thousands of years, and they didn't seem to have any adverse impacts on them, then, you know, who is it toxic to? And why are we preserving land over people when they are a ecosystem together? They are an ecosystem together, Mm -hmm. right? And if you remove the people, what is that going to do to this sacred land? You know, you've just removed part of their ecosystem. So basically it sounds like you're saying that the idea of sustainability is sort of a utopian um, yeah. I believe in sustainability. I am an advocate for sustainability. I believe that anything can be used as a tool or a weapon, and we just need to be on top of what that looks like and what we're doing with sustainability. And we can't use that word as a code word for theft of land. We have to use it as uh, the word, as the meaning it's intended to be, which means intact ecosystems. And if that means that there are human beings that are interdependent on it, then they should certainly remain part of their ecosystem and not be moved out. Right. Absolutely. That reminds me of, there was a documentary on the babushkas of Chernobyl. Mm. Yeah. And that there's all these grandmothers who continued to live there uh, even after the radioactive radioactivity and, and they're doing fine there, but the government's trying to push them out. Yep. Yep. Totally. Um, I'll put a link to that too, because that is a really interesting story. It is. It's about place and it's about, um, and I think that they had been moved out and then they, I think they kind of like broke back in mm. and set up their community there. And they actually have great health, uh, better health than the people who were moved out and didn't go back. Right. And so then the question there is because they were in place. Yes, they were in place. And and being being in place, which is one of our main talking points for this podcast, is place and yeah. that and what that means. Yeah, exactly. Um, when we feel attunement with place, that it actually creates health and yes. can overcome all kinds of other things. Absolutely. So um, now you your latest endeavors, I think maybe we'll just um, share a little bit about your goddess beauty and what you're doing 
um, the other things that you're in, you're doing now, you did, we did say in the beginning that you used to run an equal salon here called Faces of Astarte and that closed a year ago, correct? I know. Yeah. A year ago in March. Yeah. And you moved your, moved your energy into other places, yeah. uh, such as Goddess Beauty. So what's Goddess Beauty? And, and- yeah. So, um, Goddess Beauty, uh, was born out of the, <laughs> You know, it's so fun, isn't it, Lisa, that when uh, you uh, just listen to the little uh, uh, passions in your heart or the things that are tugging on you, she came out of a desire to reclaim some of my uh, traditional beauty culture from being a Lebanese or uh, Arab uh, in the world and you know there's discussion about who's an Arab what's an Arab and of course Lebanon is in the Levant and but that's another podcast anyway it's worthy to just note that um, so the reality is is that all of the uh, current political uh, issues over the last you know what are they 15 well I mean I don't know, millennia too, but 15, 20 years, very active. Um, and then they uh, took a, a like, a, I want to call it a terrorist organization and named them uh, with an acronym of ISIS, right? The uh, Islamic Socialist, uh, I, I don't know, whatever that acronym stands for. And then they changed it to ISIL because people started getting really upset with the fact that they're taking an ancient goddess's name. No one would take the name Jehovah and, you know, assign it to a terrorist group. And so um, I was like, well, you know, I just, I found the goddess in Lebanon when I was there and ISIS uh, original, um, well and it was such a powerful experience for me and then when coming home and then seeing how you know people can just assign names because of course they didn't call themselves isis they called themselves devash or i don't know i'm gonna say it wrong but anyway um they have their own name but in the united states we rename everything because we're pandering or we're trying to talk to a certain group of people and so then they took the name of the goddess Isis and they assigned it to this terrorist organization and that broke my heart and I was like you know that's just so inappropriate and so I called it goddess beauty not because it's Isis but because the goddess you know Isis is one of the goddesses and there's many of them and Astarte was one and you know I she was very good to me when I opened my salon uh, faces of Astarte and my dad was an orthodox Christian priest and he loved the name of my salon you know so he didn't see it as something that was blasphemous or anything like that um, and so the goddess is really a whole concept, right? Which is how we got to that know yourself, what works for you, what's your specific beauty in the world rather than this is what beauty looks like. And now you can have a nose job or now you get an ear job or now you get a tummy tuck or, you know, that kind of thing, because it's always commercialized. So the goddess is like, no, I start out as a child and then I become a a maiden and then I'm a birther and then I'm a crone. 
and I have all of these faces to my depth and my beauty and each one of those faces is super um is super powerful if i embrace them and so the goddess doesn't tell you who you are she is you in in you and in those matriarchal societies it was an egalitarian society it wasn't something that was it, I can't say it was total. There certainly had some hierarchies to it, but it, there was also a recognition that all, all children were her children. All uh, beings came from, you know, the same mother. And so, uh, and everyone was a brother. Everyone was a father. Everyone was a sister. So, um, those concepts is what I really wanted to express with goddess beauty. And so um, the goddess is uh, who she is. And um, right now she's selling the herbal pigments. I'm going to start adding the size that I gave you last week to the website, which is the kilo packs, because I feel like um, that's one way to keep our carbon footprint down. (laughs) Instead of buying, you know, small amounts, you can get them now in the kilo size and um, just preserve them well and they'll last you for however long. And um, and so that's uh, one of the new products that I'm going to have on the website. And I believe we're looking at some um, body soaps and stuff like that, hair shampoos and Christine, two other ancient beauty practices I heard of that were fascinating to me. I was just wondering if you had uh, heard of it or any comment on them. Is Egypt, they would use iridescent insect shells and make a dust of them to make an eye makeup. Mm-hmm. And the other... Oh, absolutely. The mineral makeup that women use today are based on that premise. Yep. And um, I think I gave uh, you guys a link to um, an article that I wrote for uh, Arab America on Arab beauty. And it was around Egypt and all of that. I just loved learning so much about that when I was writing it. It was so informative. And um, yeah, Egypt, our mineral makeup today is based on that premise that Cleopatra used with her makeup and of course she was a henna user um and um lucille ball more notably currently uh also used henna so i didn't know lucille ball used henna yeah (laughs) yeah she promoted what she called a henna rinse Hmm. yeah and the other one was the ashes i think of burned frankincense was used as some type of an eye makeup Yes, uh, it's the liner, and it is the, uh, and sometimes people will make that stuff at home. You know, it's really like if you took, um, yeah, like you said, frankincense. I was thinking of um, the other one, Lisa, is it, I'm going to mispronounce it, Paul Asante. Palo Santo? Palo Santo. So that, like, when you burn that and it gets that ashiness, oh, yeah. if you take, yeah, you take that and you, they would just line their eyes with it because the sun was so bright, mm. right? So it was like to reduce the glare of the sun and then it became a cosmetic. Yeah. And Palo Santo, I believe now is, has become endangered because. Yeah, of- I know. Right. And I'm not sure about frankincense. If that's also, I know as some of these become 
popular, uh, they become overused, commercialized. Yes, yes. I mean, that's part of it, right? right? And what is local that you have? What can you do that you can make? Which is, again, you know, some of the things that I offer on my website, I want to be recipes even, you know. It's like, can you make this yourself, you know? And does it have to be trademarked that it's got us beauties, but, um, and then I own it, and then I have to make it, and then I have to ship it? Or is it something that you can get from me a couple of times that's easy for you to see the ingredients that you can recreate in your home? Um, and empowers you in a different way, you know, because sometimes we have classes and some people don't have access to classes, but if you make a product that's simple enough and they go, oh, I can get all this stuff at my natural food store or I can grow these things and I can make it for myself, you know, I think that's got value because, you know, we want to not be so top down. We don't want 1% of the world to, um, have all of the resources, you know, that's just, uh, inappropriate. So that's an awesome model. Yeah. So that also just, um, just, it just leads me to just wondering about, because I know you've been so involved in the eco justice community and, um, that you have your finger on the pulse there just what your thoughts are on the current climate crisis and some of the things that are happening. Sure. Yeah. Climate was uh, um, a topic that I worked in New York state um, with the physicians for uh, social responsibility, um, doctors without borders and stuff like that. So um the, the reality is we have the technology, you know, the, the technology does exist to get us off of fossil fuels. You know, it's again, the same thing that we experience, whether it's with hunger, feeding the world or healthcare or aid to other countries, you know, it's the people in the systems that can be corrupt and then they benefit and not everybody else. Um, benefits. It's I, known as greed, you know, <laughs> just known as greed. Um, and so, yeah, so we have corporate welfare instead of welfare for the population. And, um, and so while we may uh, see that we have the technology and we are really getting to a point of being able to start to implement that technology. I'm going to share a few little things here. I think that it's really important for people to know. Uh, you can get renewable energy just by going to National Grid's website. And when you go to National Grid's website and you see their green options, you want to go into those green options. You want to be careful when you start looking because uh, some of them are also invested in like natural gas or fossil fuels, but they also might have some solar or some small hydro. Now, there are several, two that I specifically know of, that are doing just 100% renewable, and they're not invested in any kind of fossil fuels at all. And you clicked on either of those two companies and for like five to seven dollars a month more which is really not going to break your bank and if it does 
you know, uh, then let somebody know because I'm sure there are programs that we can link you up to. But for a nominal fee, you will get uh, renewable energy into your home. Now, it comes out of the grid. Does that mean that the wind energy that Faces of Astarte used uh, by doing this simple act uh, came you know, from wind farm. Well, the reality is it comes out of the grid. So what's in the grid is going to come to me. But the fact that I'm specifically saying that I want 100% wind means that for the amount of energy I'm using, they must legally produce that amount to put into the grid. Mm -hmm. So if everybody is doing that, then that quotient of what uh, we're demanding as far as renewable energy has to be created because that's what you're purchasing through your grid. Of course, there are other ways of doing it. Remember, uh, it's really important to shut your lights off. I mean, I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous compared to big corporations and what they're doing. But it also reminds me of a conversation that I had with somebody years ago around, you know, I have to wash my cans before I put them out for recycling. And this was a person who was a devotee of a guru, right? Mm -hmm. And in order for me to kind of make my, my case with her, I said, well, it's a matter of consciousness, right? And her response to me was, well, just how conscious do you have to be? That's the question. Who are we? Because when we start making these little practices in our everyday life, even though we know that I'm not saving the world by shutting the light off when I leave my room, I am creating myself to be a different consciousness. Mm. And when I create myself to be a different consciousness, when I'm recycling or if I'm shutting the light or I'm using uh, you know, renewable energy from the grid, then that creates a different space in the world. And so not only are we talking physical, but we are, we are acknowledging the metaphysical acts of our physical acts, right? And so, yeah, that's a great question. Just how conscious do we have to be? So th those are just some really important little things to do. And it reminds me again of that quote around never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that does. Um, we know that through TM meditators uh, that go into inner cities to reduce inner city violence and it, and it works. Uh, and we know that we don't need a majority of people to make the difference. We just need the most passionate to put their energy there. So these are parts of those things. As far as like the eco justice uh the, the impact of climate or anything, even GMO, on eco-justice communities. I don't know if you were aware of the economic summit that happened a little while ago, Global Davos, I think it's called, um, where one of the interviewees was uh, uh, condescending, uh, a, and, and I'm just saying, you know, Lebanon's going through a revolution. I don't know their politicians. Um, that's for them to decide. Although this woman who is interviewing their foreign minister was saying things like, you know, Lebanon's beautiful and you're using filthy energy. And yet, 
she's in the same breath saying, well, Trump's building such a great economy. And while is he building his great economy on filthy energy? Mm-hmm. So, and she was a Davos e- uh, economic summit moderator. Mm-hmm. So as we see these compromised communities in our cities, like we all have the other side of the tracks where we are, we also have them globally. We've been dumping in China and India, uh, in Lebanon, in all these other countries, because we're not taking care of our stuff. And so while recycling on a small level in the home doesn't cut it, you know, because we're not reducing the waste stream, which we absolutely essentially must do, Right now, we're all getting to the point where, okay, the stores aren't going to carry the plastic bags anymore. Yay, right? But 30 years ago, we tried to do that. So anyway, the point is, is that by practicing these things, it's almost like a prayer state, right? I'm going to shut my light off. I'm going to put my can in here. I'm going to put my paper in there. It's like a meditation all day long. And then through that shift, um, hopefully will create a, a critical mass that allows uh, an energy shift to happen in the consciousness of uh, our corporations that will start to make a bigger difference and a bigger impact. So, yeah. So a couple reflections there. One, I just want to say that you brought up um, national grid, which is uh, Northeastern. Is that the, is that, is it all the Northeast? It's New York state, uh, our, our, our power company. I'm not sure how far they, 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 they go, but, um, national grid. So I'm assuming that other power countries around uh, power companies around the, the U S yes, they would have something similar. Yes. And then you said, you mentioned with national grid that they have, there's two specific companies that you recommend? Um, the one that really jumps out at me right now is Community Energy. There is another one, but I would have to go in and really take a look at it. So what you want to do is when you go to the green energy option, and then you they give you maybe a choice of 10, right? And then it should have like links by each of them. And you it's a little homework, right? But hey, is it worth it? Yeah. Well, so then you click on the links and you see exactly where they're sourcing. And so I'll put those links. Um, I'll put those links on the bottom of the page. I'll do. I'll look them up and and put the links there. And then also, um, just wanted to talk about because you 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 mentioned it briefly, um, and then just in what you were saying, the the last part about some of the things going on in the world, specifically Lebanon, that maybe just sharing um, your that your your parents were both. Lebanese immigrants, and I know you and Pete also, that's a uh, shared heritage for you too. And so you're a first generation um, American Lebanese, is that? Yeah, so I mean, it kind of is a little bit complex for me because my mother uh, was born in Lebanon, but her parents were American citizens. Her mother was an immigrant that became um, a citizen as well as her father and then they were back in Lebanon when my mother was born Uh, and my mother grew up there uh, until she was about 16 so she was born to um, immigrants that were American citizens right there was a lot more travel back and forth in those days we didn't know my my own my own my exactly 
my Ireland to Italy. People just traveled, and there wasn't a lot of this stuff. They had to get on a ship and go for a month on a ship, yeah. back and forth, and they. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then my dad's family is definitely uh, immigrants. Um, yeah, it was uh, a wonderful uh, culture to be brought up in. My father, again, was an Orthodox Christian priest. So my lens of um, uh, Arabicness comes through Christianity. Um, my passion around my roots is more around the um, matrilineal uh, goddess uh, approach, which existed in that area. They're dating about 10,000 years before uh, the patriarchy took over, which we're counting at around almost 7,000 years now. So the so that is my more interest around my roots is where uh, the goddess figurines are. Uh, and I know, you know, some of the herstory around why divinity was interpreted as female. I think I sent you a really interesting link last night, Lisa, uh, via Facebook that uh, is really great. And it's a young man of color, a young black man actually, who puts this together. Um, very interesting. So um, yeah, that's kind of my, my take on that. Okay. So, wow. Yeah, so fascinating stuff and good stuff and very, it's all very inspiring. Um, and let's see, any other questions, Pete, that we want to um, make sure that we cover? Yeah, I just want to say it was a very inspiring to have this discussion with you, Christine. Thanks, Pete. We always have some good chats. There's so much to, you just, there's, it's just like so rich. <laughs> um, there's so much here and it's, it's all connected and yeah. from herbs to politics to cosmos. Yeah. Cosmos to, um, Oh, I know what I wanted to say is the, what you were talking about, the consciousness and being conscious and, you know, that, that our participation in, you know, either shutting off the lights or recycling for me, I, you know, I've always, struggled with that a little bit because it's like well unless everybody's doing it what's the point because right I mean, I'm, then I'm basically just giving myself more work or whatever and it's not right. going to change anything and and yet there's always been a part of me that you know that my mind would be like my you know when I my, my cognitive my intellect would be like well this isn't really doing anything like me recycling this jar isn't going to make a damn bit of difference in the landfill right it's like there's still you know unless everybody's doing it and there have been mass movements to recycle um although i think it is also important to add that recycling has its environmental costs oh absolutely absolutely um, does that's why reducing the waste stream is so so important so important but I, I do like the, the uh, there's always been things I just felt so, you know, strongly. And I know um, Pete and, and his partner Nancy as well um, have similar values to yours and mine and, and that, you know, composting and, and all sorts of things that are in what we would call environmentally conscious that we know, you know, my compost pile isn't going to save the world or change the landfill, but there's something about doing that that is 
just what you said. It's a prayer. It's a, it's a form of meditation and it's a way that I am making a relationship with the earth and place that connects me differently than just throwing stuff in the garbage. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the funny thing about garbage is that we're always buying it. Like we, garbage doesn't just show up. <laughs> yeah. So I know that's interesting. Yeah. You're always bringing it in. <laughs> I know we're always bringing it in. I mean, even when we were fighting the landfill, some of us would be to the point where if we bought something at the store, we would leave the packaging in the store and just take out, you know, and then stores started doing things a little bit differently. And sometimes they didn't, but you know, yeah. I know locally here, one of the things is that the, the, the little bit of organic produce that we can get uh, is often wrapped in plastic, like in yeah. That's why. That's why we're in a shop with Pete and his CSA. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you bring your you bring your own bags and you bring your bag. Yeah. 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 And it's fresh and it's right off the farm and he's touched it and loved it. So right. uh, you win, 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 win. Right. Right. Well, I think yeah. Thank you. Thank Andrew. you. It's lovely to engage with you again in so many ways. Yeah, I know. I love our conversations and I know this one is ongoing. Um, And any other questions that you have, Pete? No, thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah. Um, Thanks, guys. Even if lightning strikes Or if thunder splits the sky If the mountains fall and rivers overflow You can never stop a seed from growing Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Wild Under Root podcast. All of the links from today's show as well as past episodes can be found at therootcircle.com. The Root Circle is a center for plant medicine and folk magic, where you can find my blog, videos, as well as our shop, and a list of upcoming events, all focused around plants as tools for cultural and community resilience. This show was produced in full by myself, Lisa Fazio, and my co-host, Pete Bianco. If you enjoyed it, please consider making a donation to its continued production, as well as to our wish list of recording equipment upgrades. The music that we play on the show is by Old Lang Syne, who are our friends and members of our local community, now located in Brisbee, Arizona. Please check out their link in our show notes. Thanks for tuning in.